You have returned to Season 2 of the Logos of Experience and Truth podcast, where I continue this journey of unlocking the hidden mysteries of the beatific vision of God for you, the spiritual pilgrim treading upon the narrow path. Prepare yourself. Episode 12, The Death Experience Welcome back to the Logos of Experience and Truth podcast. If you have not listened to the first episode of this season, episode number 11, please do so before proceeding forward as this episode will not make much sense if you haven't listened to the previous one. Let's get right into it. Time skipped again after that phone call I received. I don't remember anything else occurring in the parking lot outside of that nightclub. I don't remember driving, nothing. I was just suddenly in an apartment, on the couch, freaking out over what I'd witnessed in that nightclub. Because of the time skipping, I'm not entirely sure on how much time had passed sitting there in this apartment, on this couch, trying to process what I'd seen and experienced. I remember seeing the daylight, but then I could just be imagining it. The point I'm making is I've thought that the entire contents of this experience, both the previous episode and what I will relate in this one, could have happened entirely in a single night, but also could have taken place over the course of two nights. I'm not entirely sure due to the time-skipping experience. All I know is I was plastered to this couch, immovable, sweating, trying to organize my mind and thoughts, being incapable of it due to the drug effects, coupled with the realization of having seen hell on earth, and that it seemed like I saw daylight, but then it was also as if it was nighttime again, and people kept coming and going from this apartment I was in. I will try to relate what I felt at this point, since it's very strange, is coming through a fog of memory and gets mythological even. Even though I fully knew and was taking responsibility for having smoked the drug at an internal level, that those around me knew that this would happen if I did it was paramount in my mind. But since I'd seen those strange internal presences within all those in the nightclub, including the people I was with, I couldn't make out if the people I was with were actually conscious of this or if it had been these inner presences within them that had taken part in influencing me with or through these people around me towards smoking the speed. Let me word it directly. All those that I'd been with, including each of those coming and going persons into this apartment, seemed to be benefiting from the experience I was having in some very strange, otherworldly manner. It was as if they had gained something, were gaining something from it, from my suffering, and that it was as if they had offered me or sacrificed me to this hellish realm, is another way I was thinking and seeing at this point. I know that sounds super strange, but that's what it felt like, and it angered me. It angered me that I trusted these so-called friends, angered me that I'd chosen to hang around with them, angered me that I'd chosen to join in and smoke that drug. But though I could recognize the anger and frustration, since my mind was still all out of whack, it was as if I was chained to that couch, immovable and incapable of leaving, incapable of escaping the experience, essentially. Obviously, my sense of time was distorted since I can't place if there was or wasn't daylight or if it was all one night, but eventually I found myself alone in the dark, still seated on the couch, in deep night. 
There were no more coming and going of people in and out of that apartment. The lights were off and I was alone with my heart pounding out of my chest. I turned the television on since I was hoping it would take my mind off of what I'd experienced at the nightclub. I couldn't have been more wrong. I'll give you the movie and television imagery that sort of speaks of what I experienced next and honestly may have merged with the drug experience or something to that degree and created what I saw from the depths of my subconscious. There's an old horror movie starring the late John Ritter called Stay Tuned that I'd watched as a child. I don't remember the details of it. I only remember that it's either he gets sucked into television world or television world gets sucked out and into his reality. The television reference would be one of the old Simpsons Halloween specials when Bart and Lisa get sucked into the television and are in the itchy and scratchy show. That gives you a hint at what I next witnessed. It wasn't that I got sucked into the television. It's that what I saw on the television appeared to be directly aimed and crafted at and for me to watch at that exact moment. Most of it is a blur, but I clearly remember two things that I saw. One was some type of medical channel that was showing a surgery occurring. But in it, the doctors were laughing their heads off since they were cutting up some person and were saying to the camera, or to me, that what was funny was they had no idea what they were actually doing and that the person didn't even need the surgery but had been convinced they needed it. The next one was a bit clearer. It was like an infomercial and there was a lady seated on a hair cutting chair. I think they're called beauty chairs, but I'm not sure since I'm a guy and I go to a barber and call it a barber chair. But the infomercial aspect to it was that she was trying on some type of anti-aging cream or night face cream or something like that. And she was smearing it over her face and rubbing it in and commenting on how awesome and effective it was. And then it cut to the same two doctors that had been in the previous surgery scene I'd watched on an entirely different channel and somehow having moved from one channel to the next and they were once again laughing their heads off. And the camera got close to them, and they looked at it, and thus out at me, and said that what made the entire thing so funny was that all the woman was smearing on her face was scented mayonnaise, and that people were stupid using this stuff since in reality they had no idea what was in it. My heart started to race since it felt like the television was talking directly to me and telling me secrets that I didn't care to know. I quickly turned it off. I noticed the blinds were open to the patio that looked out into the night and my gaze wandered over to it. I think I was able to stand up and eventually went to the blinds, but I'm not entirely sure. These were those long vertical blinds you see on sliding glass doors and they were open and I began to look outside. Very interesting that I just watched a movie that showed something similar to what I will describe here. It was the last scene in the recent Nighthouse movie when the main character is out on the lake with her dead husband, just in case you want to get a very eerie and accurate visual, which makes me wonder about the creators of the movie. Peering through the blinds, I looked up into the sky and couldn't move my eyes away, transfixed as I suddenly became. I've lived in California my entire life, all but two years in Southern California. I know what the sunsets look like, the various colors that it creates as the sun's rays are filtered through all that smog. The purples, the oranges, the rainbow sherbet-like blending of the colors. I know what that looks like, but never in all my life, in deep night, like somewhere between midnight and 3 a.m., never have I seen the sky the color red. Not a purple red, not an orange red, but red, like crayon red or lipstick red. I could say it looked blood red, but that's not really what it looked like, and I'd just be trying to make this into more of a horror story instead of recounting what I saw since blood is a darker red. This was red. 
Not bright red, not dark red, just red, like that of a stop sign. More crimson than that, but maybe crimson will be the correct red. I'm not an artist, and knowing colors beyond the standard spectrum is really not my forte, so I apologize. Either way, it wasn't daytime, so the possible sunset creating the color in the sky was out of the question, and because I recognized this impossibility of the sky being red at some time between midnight and 3 a.m., I was transfixed. I scanned across the sky, and everywhere was red, with the bright stars peering through. Then my eyes locked onto the moon. I couldn't tell you what shape the moon had, if it was full or not, but it was definitely in more of a round shape versus the crescent moon. Not that it mattered though, because as I was looking at the moon, it suddenly morphed into the shape of a skull. My mind and thoughts had no hesitation in recognizing this as death, whether through my knowledge of the association of death with skulls and bones, death artistically depicted with the hood and robe, whatever it was, I knew I was looking at death itself, and it turned ever so slightly to look directly at me, almost as if it knew I was now looking at it. Horror is the only word I can give to describe what I felt. I backed away from the window, and that's right, I had stood up and gone to look out the window since I walked backward from it, trying to move my head away from what I was seeing, but incapable of removing my gaze from that of the moon having transformed into the skull of death amidst the red sky. When I sat back down on the couch, I was able to look away, but curiosity of course crept in when I glanced back. The skull moon was still in the red sky, looking at me through the vertical blinds of the sliding glass door to the apartment patio. I knew death was upon me. When I thought this, it was as if every sound suddenly became audible. Every knock in the walls, footsteps from the apartment above, the every so often car driving by outside, as if death was coming towards me. Then it was as if something was trying to press through and out of the walls in front of me. A hand, a face, I couldn't make it out clearly. This is 2001, and though you may laugh at the movie and the effects now, probably the best superhero movie at the time other than the OG Michael Keaton Batman flicks had been the recent Spawn movie. I'm sure the image in this movie is what was influencing what I was seeing at the time, but what I saw trying to come out of the walls looked like when the John Leguizamo clown character is in his violator demonic form and presses through the wall at the end of the movie. Obviously, since Spawn has to do with heaven and hell, thoughts of what I'd seen in the nightclub and the death skull in the red sky flooded my mind, and I closed my eyes shut tight and lay down on the couch since I knew death was around the corner, pressing in all around me, but I was still going to try to fight it. I remembered again the line from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, this time with the actual words used that fighting the drug will cause brain bubbles, and the word that appeared in my mind was an aneurysm. Still being in the grips of knowing that thoughts can create sensation, I started to feel a pulsating in my brain, like it was about to explode and that I was about to die. I put my hands together and fought to force the thoughts out of my head to focus through it to see past it. Then a different sensation erupted from right above my ear, that spot where when you were a kid, if you ever gave a knuckle sandwich to someone else or to yourself, that spot where you make a knuckle and twist along the head, that spot where medicine tells you to rub to ease out stress. Not the temples, since that's on the forehead, but that spot where the sideburns are, where they start to curve along the ear line. I didn't know what it was at the time. I assumed it was the aneurysm I was thinking was going to happen. But the hot sensation began to create a vibratory feeling with a strange sound to it. The best way I've been able to describe this to myself is if you took a tuning fork and struck it, and then placed it in the spot I just described, 
It was like that, but not a vibratory sound coming from outside and into the ears, but a vibration and a sound from within the brain. I felt it first on one side, then the other, and the sensation slowly moved up the sides of my brain towards the top of my head or towards the front of my forehead. I can't remember exactly since it felt like it was everywhere due to the vibratory sensation and sound. Since I didn't know what it was and was terrified that this was death, I kept focusing and focusing and focusing. Eyes closed, shut tight, thinking that this was death, thinking that once the two sides of the pulsing, vibrating waves met, that it would be the end. I don't remember the transition, and obviously since nobody was around me, nobody can verify if in fact I died or not, or if it was just the culmination of the drug. Though for good reason, if you've listened this far, for good reason do I call it a near-death or death experience considering the things I was seeing. So I don't remember anything other than passing through a sort of cloudy fog, a layer of mist or fog, and suddenly finding myself floating in space. This reminded me of a previous experience that I will recount in the next episode as one of the snowballs leading me to this point, only there was something new in what I saw here. As I was gazing out into space, this giant ball of swirling light just sort of rose up right in front of me. Again, I keep giving you movie references just so you can get a second visual to help see what I saw and how I saw. But the way it rose up in front of me was like what Neo sees as the representation of that which governs the machines in the third Matrix movie, Matrix Revolutions. And since that movie didn't come out until 2003, it wasn't seeing that movie that influenced what I saw here in 2001. Anyways, this giant ball of yellowed light rose up in front of me. When I paid attention to it, I floated towards it, and as I neared, it looked like a moving planet Saturn. It had rings around it, but they were moving like an astrolab, or like what you see at the beginning of a Game of Thrones episode, spinning around, yet also rotating up and down as if on an axis. Once I looked at it, I was locked on and couldn't look away. And then, the life review began which is another of the reasons I see this as a death experience, since I'd heard that when you die, you see your life flash before your eyes, and here it was. And this is how it appeared. There were two rings surrounding this ball of light that looked like the planet Saturn. If you remember or look up what old school movie reels look like, that's what each ring looked like, like a giant unrolled and turned into a circle ribbon of movie reel and they were rotating around the ball of light as they were also moving forward or spinning. Where the two rings met up is where my gaze was locked onto. One ring contained the events in my life with each image contained in the movie reel box in individual event, and the other ring contained the feeling or emotions that I had felt along with what those that had been around me had felt from the event. Again, each contained in an individual image of the movie reel. So one ring was the conscious element, the other the subconscious or emotional element. And they were spinning fast, incredibly fast. But each moment of life and emotion was seen clearly regardless of how fast it was spinning. And not just seen but felt or re-felt in the personal along with what others had felt as well. There is no way to describe this experience beyond that. Time had no meaning in this place or state, so watching this occur, though to me it appeared to be moving at both light speed due to the speed of the spinning rings, 
but also at a snail's crawl since I could clearly see each image and feel each emotion from each image within the ring as it spun and spun and spun one memory and feeling after another, but at light speed. And it felt like it was tearing me apart or trying to tear me apart, at least. I remember fighting it at first, trying to look away, much as I had tried to look away from the giant death skull in the sky, but was incapable of doing so. But then something in me turned. Something in me changed. Realizing that I was probably dead and that I couldn't look away, I thought to myself that I might as well look at this spinning ball of light and pain and learn either where I went wrong or what it was trying to show me. If this was judgment, since even though I had barely a nascent concept of Judgment Day, I still thought that maybe this was the judgment that comes at death, and if it was, I would look at it consciously and with acceptance and be judged. Instantly, it showed me two memories. Memories of myself that had been erased from conscious memory over the years, but that had essentially played a role in everything I was seeing and experiencing, whether I knew it or not. And these were the two memories. Like many kids, as a child, I had to walk to and from school. This afforded much freedom, of course, but also much danger since some dude tried to kidnap me and a buddy while we were walking home in the fourth grade. But this memory was of me in the third grade, probably at eight years old since I didn't start walking or biking myself to and from school until after a couple months in the third grade. My birthday being in November, I'm pretty sure I was eight years old. Anyways, my parents were on and off again churchgoers, and I remember they tried to put me in Sunday school once, and I instantly hated it. So I sat in church with them, and something the priest said had been internalized at the time. It was during his homily, so he was probably talking about whatever readings had just been read. I'm sure I could try to look up the exact ones, but I know the saying is in several parts in the Bible and easily looked up with a Google search. It had to do with thoughts. In particular, God knowing our thoughts. And in particular, particular, that God knows our thoughts even before we think them. And for some reason, I internalized this. And since I didn't like walking home from school alone in the third grade and was generally alone when I woke up in the morning, both parents having left for work already, and alone when I got home since neither was there when I got home, I began to think that if God knew my thoughts before I thought them was in my thoughts, then I could talk to God whenever I wanted to. And I began a habit of imagining conversations with God as I walked to and from school, asking God questions about as much as I knew regarding life and about Him and what He was really. And I did this as an eight-year-old in the third grade. I don't know when it stopped. Maybe it never really did. And at this experience, I just didn't realize that I was always talking to God. But the memory flash during this life viewing only showed the interior talking to God occurring, not when it ended. I can't remember if I ever got an answer back or anything like that, since as most have experienced in vocal prayer or talking to God in our thoughts, whether in the external or internal, that they are rarely if ever answered in the external or the internal, and it's this conundrum of the religious experience of prayer that I sympathize with and understand why the atheist thinks the religious person crazy and that they're just talking to a phony baloney imaginary God. Again, I can't say that I ever received any vocal answer in my thoughts, and if you've listened to any of the other material I've presented, hopefully you understand why there's overwhelmingly never any vocal answer since the divine speaks in symbols, not words, other than those extraordinary instances that are found in the religious texts of the world. But I can't say that any time I did pray in my mind, think and talk in my mind to God, that at least at this early age, I was always comforted, always felt comforted, 
like I wasn't alone, that God was with me and loved me, and that in the teen years, it wasn't God that had turned from me, but I who had turned from God since I began to see God as the punisher instead of the eternally compassionate. So that was memory number one. I'm realizing I may have mentioned this in a previous podcast, so please be patient if I did, though I do remember for certain that I spoke of the next memory that was shown to me. Same time period, third grade, maybe even the same day, since in my memory of this near-death experience life review, it goes from seeing myself as this third grader walking home from school, about to start heading down a little hill towards Sentinella Street, coming from Grant Elementary School in Santa Monica, California, and then seeing myself laying on the top of my bunk bed at night, trying to go to sleep. My eyes were closed, my hands were clasped and resting over my belly, and in the television static of my closed eyes, I was frustrated that the thoughts wouldn't stop in my mind, that they wouldn't go away. So I squeezed my eyes super tight and told myself I was going to pick a point in the television static of my closed eyes to stare at, and that I wasn't going to look away from this point wasn't going to look at the thoughts as they entered into my mind, that I wasn't going to engage with or consider the thoughts, and that by doing this, I would fall asleep. Since not everybody will know exactly what it was I was doing, I was meditating at age eight with zero understanding or training. Single-pointed meditation or contemplative prayer to be exact as it's called in the Catholic Church in the teachings of St. John of the Cross, and at age eight, I was already successful in achieving the quieting of the storm of the mind through this simple, childlike activity that I used to do to help me get to sleep. Awareness of these memories dislodged my attention from the life review images that continued to spin ceaselessly in front of me. It's not that I wasn't seeing them, but I wasn't engaging them consciously. And the awareness of a presence, an all-pervading presence, flooded my senses and the thoughts that surrounded this feeling was that if God knew my thoughts before I thought them, then God was present with me, right then and there. I remember I got angry at first because I felt as if God was responsible for this painful life review I was witnessing and the thoughts of the punishing God crept in for a moment, but then I remembered that comforted feeling as a child and knew that was the real God, not whatever it was I was looking at as this giant ball of light with the two spinning rings rotating and rotating that looked like the planet Saturn in motion. What unhinged me from this punishing God thought was when I took responsibility for my actions, when I acknowledged within my thoughts, which in this place, this experience, thoughts were as loud as spoken words, and I acknowledged that God wasn't responsible for my being here. I was. I had taken the drug. I had smoked it. I had done all the other things I had done that had brought me to this place of death and this death experience. But another realization hit me as well when I thought this. If this ball of light that I was looking at wasn't God, though even then I understood it as some type of mechanism to the universe and thus ultimately the work of God, but if God wasn't this ball of light, then what was it? It sort of expanded and grew in magnitude before my eyes, almost as if it were attempting to envelop or suck me into it, But somehow, even then, I knew the truth. Though it was showing me the entirety of my life experiences, thoughts and memories and the feelings attached to them, though one could say that I was looking at myself, and obviously if one is experiencing a life review, then there is a general knowing that one is looking at themselves and the life they've lived. But at this moment, I could tell that because I was looking at it, that whatever I truly was, whatever I truly am, whatever my real self is, 
was not this ball of light containing all mental and emotional memory, since as an observer observing it, I was always separated from it in a way, and thus was not the sum total of mental and emotional memory that I was witnessing, for I was witnessing it as an observer. And though it wanted to engulf all my sight, wanted to take up my entire vantage point and assume the role of the entirety of the self, even then I knew that it was not the real and true me. In fact, it was only a fraction of the self trying to tell me that was all I was. There was the experience and the one that experience is. And the confusion is when what is experienced is seen as the self of the experiencer, when in reality, the one that experiences always remains separate from that which is experienced, even though it was experienced. Knowing this, I stared back at the swirling ball of light, focusing with all my might to look through and above it with the remembrance of my skill at doing so as a child. And the ball of spinning light began to drop beneath my vantage point or I began to rise above it. Either way, it was soon nowhere to be seen and I was once again in the blackness of space surrounded by starlight, exhausted, but still and at ease. And I prayed. I told God that I knew I deserved all that I had undergone, that I deserved death, for I had caused whatever this was. I didn't know why I'd lived my life the way that I had or why I'd done all the drugs, but I knew that I had, and I took responsibility for it. I asked God for forgiveness and said that if he spared me death, I would work towards changing my life, towards understanding him, and help bring others to understand him as well. There was a great stillness and silence that enveloped me, and though I am positive of what I saw, I am also going to be honest and say that I am positive I could have also internalized this image later and have simply inserted it into the experience. I know that's a paradox, but that's how I'll word it. The darkness and blackness of space cracked and crashed like a piece of glass with luminous and brilliant light descending through it and towards me. And I'm positive it looked like a hand reaching towards me. I don't remember if I reached towards it so it's not the full Michelangelo Sistine Chapel image, but I'm positive I saw a hand of light and positive that I may have simply seen the Sistine Chapel image a few days later and have simply attributed what I saw to the hand of God. Either way, it was a brilliant beam of light that crashed through the very fabric of space as if space and the stars were painted upon the interior walls of a fishbowl and the light was crashing through it towards me. If you want an image of how it looked, it's the same image I've always thought of and just recently saw again showing the Batman movie to my daughters. It looked like the glass breakage scene and entrance of Batman into the art museum when he confronts the Joker and saves Vicky Vale, again in the OG Michael Keaton Batman movie. Only instead of the ceiling being white and the dark night and black descending, the colors were the other way around and it was bright white light crashing through the blackness of space itself towards me. I remember nothing other than my eyes closing when the light touched me, and instantly when my eyes reopened, I was still laying on the couch in the apartment where all this had occurred. And unless an entire day had passed without my realizing it and I was just laying on this couch all that time, it was still night, just much later in the night. What was also interesting was all the effects of the drug were completely gone, like in the blink of an eye. My mind felt like it was in order once more, and with the experience I had just had, I felt like I'd not just been given a second chance, but like I'd been renewed 
or rejuvenated. It wasn't a redeemed feeling. I wouldn't make that connection or feeling until later, but like I'd been given some piece of my strength back, enough to get out of where I was. But the experience wasn't entirely over. What I saw next is very difficult to explain. I've called it the mind stream or seeing the mind stream. In essence, everything I saw during this experience could be called the mind stream, but here instead of it entering into my mind like from an unseen presence or eavesdropping into the mind of others or whatever it was I saw in the near-death experience, it was like seeing the spinning rings in the ball of light but no longer spinning and just a ribbon hovering over the fabric of space in the ceiling of the apartment I was in. So the knowledge gained of my true or truer self being something greater than just mental and emotional memory meant that I could now see this mind or time stream and not be engulfed in it. And what I was seeing or hearing within this ribbon was the voice of my father, my physical father, not God the father, though there was an eerie is God speaking through my father feeling that I experienced, which is what makes the experience difficult to explain. Even though I felt renewed to a degree, I still had that feeling like I'd been sacrificed and that I was trapped where I was and this voice of my father that I was seeing and hearing almost as if it were floating in the space within this apartment was telling me to call him, that all I had to do was call him. This was no easy thing to do, of course, since my father had warned me repeatedly about hanging out with the people I was with. So again, it was like I had to confess both to God the Father in the spiritual experience but also had to confess to my actual father in this strange, synchronous merging of both the exterior experience of life and the interior spiritual experience. I called my father. Again, I don't know what time it was, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., but he answered on one ring and even told me he was awake because he knew I was going to call him. I told him where I was and what I had done and asked him what I should do next. He said it's very simple just get up and leave and come home. I felt like I weighed a ton, but I stood up and exited the apartment. I won't interpret what I encountered outside. Very easy for those that have read Dante, which within a month or so after this experience I did read, but when I got outside of that apartment, I felt the coldest cold I have ever felt. And not to say that I've been in super cold weather, but I've skied in negative 15 to 20 degree weather in Utah where it felt like toes were constantly getting frostbitten. That was cold, real cold. Whatever this was, was eternally colder. There was also the thickest layer of fog I think I've ever seen here in Southern California. I could barely see in front of me and I stammered forward through this fog, chilled to the bone until I made it to my car. I turned it on and sat there for a while trying to blast the heater and warm up but I simply could not get warm. Realizing this, I knew I was going to have to try to drive. My father didn't live that far away from where I was, but my teeth were chattering, my body, arms, and hands were shaking from the cold, and I could barely see in front of me because of the fog. I don't know how I managed to drive to my dad's house, but I did. When I got out of the car and walked up the entryway to his house, I dropped my keys, wallet, any belongings I had in my pocket as if I was stripping away whatever vestiges that reminded me of myself. He opened the door and I hugged him and all he said was I warned you about those people and that they were the devil to you. The word devil of course rang loudly in my mind. He told me to go upstairs to sleep since I needed to sleep and I dropped down on the bed he had ready for me. 
What happened next is the primary reason why I've been silent for so long. The primary reason beyond wanting to know more or wanting to have an answer for the atheist since this had been a drug experience. It was this that has kept me silent once I internalized it, seeking deeper understanding of what I experienced, piercing through the external and into the internal knowledge of the mysteries of Christ and His Church. Though my father woke me up at one point to see if I wanted to eat or wanted any water, and I sort of remember answering him no, the key detail is that I slept for three days straight. If you're not Christian, or you are and you don't understand what I'm trying to convey here, then let me spell it out. I went through a hellish land of the dead death experience and then slept and awoke three days later. The issue, of course, is in the historical presentation of the mysteries of Christ, that they occurred to one man, a very special man, a God-man, or man as God, or God as man, and that this experience is particular to this individual in the physical history of history. But if Jesus was meant to show us the way, to show us the narrow path, and if we are meant to follow him down this path, then like he says, if it happens to the master, so too will it occur to the disciple. But I wasn't a disciple. If somebody had asked me if I believed in God or what religion I belonged to, I would have said Christian, but with nothing really backing that claim. In fact, belief in Christ didn't fully make sense to me back then. God the Father made sense, but the whole baby Jesus stuff just seemed legendary or, well, Christmassy. I think I remember it a cool idea of God had really become the man Jesus, but not really anything further. In essence, why did I experience this very biblical stuff when I wasn't a biblical person? Yet if the mysteries of Christ are meant for all to walk and experience, much like how they were open to those initiates of the past religions pre and during early Christianity, and Jesus shows us the path, then all I can say is that in a mystical sense, I descended into hell, died, and then rose again renewed on the third day. This is why I spent the first season of the podcast summarizing details of the deeper knowledge of the mysteries before diving in further with my earlier experiences. And I have remained silent and spent the entire next 20 years of my life trying to understand what this means, how and why it came about, how it's even possible that this occurred to me since eventually I didn't see myself as worthy of this and have struggled with how best to convey these experiences to others. Because people generally don't like to hear this kind of stuff. They think one is proselytizing when they try to talk about God or the church. And the few times I tried just to tell others around me what I had experienced, they wanted none of it. So I quickly shut down and stopped telling others what had occurred to me and instead began to study and understand just what is meant by the mysteries of Christ and how the church has at the very least preserved them across the ages. I have been honest in saying I can't be certain if I actually died or not since it's entirely from my point of view. I have been honest in saying that this was a drug experience and there are many drug experiences depicted as being hellish in nature, but never anything more than that. Did I pierce through and go beyond what others have experienced? It seems like it. But whatever it is that I experienced, descending into the land of the dead, experiencing the living dead and the living hell, seeing death itself, the life review and the sleep that overtook for three days until I awoke fully renewed and inhabited myself again, is terrifyingly biblical. Especially since I wasn't a Bible person, Bible reader, or a real churchgoer, nothing like that. All I had done was go to church here and there throughout my life, dragged along on Sundays to that boring place we had to stop at before getting some bacon and sausage at Sunday brunch, 
and studied and enjoyed studying history in between the clouds of Mary Jane from the 8th grade up to the second year of college I was in, and not really much in between, that is, other than asking questions in my mind and quietly awaiting an answer, even if I had no longer associated that practice with prayer or talking to God. And I will leave you with that. Again, I'm finding telling this tale to be far longer than I anticipated. I thought the entire tale would only take one podcast episode, and here we are done with the second, and I'm still not quite done with this. Should you continue down the rabbit hole alongside me, I will speak both of what came next, along with the other experiences that led to this descent into Hades and hell and the life review at death. For there were several different experiences that I'd written off, not wanting to deal with the ramifications since I was too skeptical to want to engage fully. The way somebody put it to me back then was that God had been trying to get my attention and since I kept ignoring him, he had to drop a boulder on my head. You've just heard the story of the boulder. We'll get into the signs leading up to this next time, along with the immediate experiences after this near death or death experience. Until then. If you have yet to visit LogosofExperienceAndTruth.com, and borne witness to and made the connection of the near thousand images portraying what is seen during the mystical vision throughout all time, all peoples, all cultures, all traditions, the visual representation of the epitomes of science in all religions, make sure to visit and see and judge for yourself if what is shown equals my claim to experience and truth, and that which potentially unites all the deeper hidden invisible mysteries of humankind.